0: I'd like to introduce the speaker. I've been asked to do that, and it's me. (laughs) And in a minute or two, I'll tell you about myself. But why don't we pray together before we start. Oh Lord, our Heavenly Father, we come before you this afternoon as a group of concerned brothers and sisters who want to do your work in your way. I ask that you'll be with us in this session so that everything that we think or say or do will be pleasing to the Holy Spirit. Fill our hearts and minds with those things that are beneficial, and keep away from us anything which would be detrimental in your kingdom. I give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. My name is Glenn Schwartz, and uh, we are in Louisville, I understand, but where I come from, you wouldn't say it that way. (laughs) My experience is that I lived and worked in Central Africa as a missionary, most of the 1960s. I'm actually so old that I went to the mission field by boat. New York to Cape Town, 18 days on the water, only six passengers and i don't travel well so i got seasick but fortunately i was only seasick one time but unfortunately it lasted for 18 days <laughs> after doing missionary service in central africa i decided to go for missionary training but i don't <laughs> i don't recommend that especially if you're a surgeon I I prefer surgeons to get the training first and then do the practice later. You know why I say that? Because it doesn't matter how well-meaning the man is if he's not trained. His heart may be in the right place, but when he's finished with me, then my heart's not in the right place. (laughs) So I went to Pasadena. I studied in the School of World Mission at Fuller Seminary, which was a place for recovering missionaries who had been battered around and uh, trying to figure out the context in which they were living and working because no one had ever given them proper missionary training. So I went there, I studied, I got stuck in the machinery and uh, worked there for six years when the original faculty of the School of World Mission was still there. Doctors McGavern, Tippett, Winter, Wagner, Kraft, uh, Glasser, Edwin Orr, and R. Pierce Beaver, those were all the people that I was forced to go to work with every day. Imagine the, the privilege it was for me to serve them for six years as an administrator. Since 1983, I've been doing seminars on dependency and uh, self-reliance uh, all over the place. Every continent, I guess, except Antarctica. And uh, Nobody's given me an invitation or an air ticket to go there. And uh, as far as I know, there are no seminars planned for Antarctica. But everywhere else I have gone, Most recently to Russia, but mostly back to East, Central, and Southern Africa, which is uh, the area I'm familiar with. I do not pretend to be a specialist on every area of the world. By far, I'm not. And I don't pretend to have solutions for every situation that you might uh, think of or encounter. Um, But I will do my best to share what I have learned with the hope that together we can do something better in the days ahead than we have done in the past. Our old Professor Tippett used to say, you can't understand missiology apart from biography. In other words, if you understand what I lived through in colonial Central Africa in the 1960s, you will understand why I'm passionate about some things today. And while there are other things that other people are passionate about, they don't really move me so much. But my biography informs my missiology. Now part of my biography had to do with this man who was a Pennsylvania Dutch Christian. I come from uh, uh, York County, Pennsylvania. And this man uh, had the habit of witnessing to his neighbors and he witnessed to our family until uh, all of my brothers and sisters and my parents became believers. This man also had something to do with my uh, background. And by the way, If you don't have uh, a handout, there are handouts over here, Uh, and beside them, there are some articles as well. So if you need a handout, feel free to get one now. I really underestimated the number of people who would be here. So if you're a couple or if you have a a college mate or something that you can share with, uh, I'd encourage you to do that because we won't have enough. I I think I only brought 50 copies. But this man had something to do with my biography. Many of you know him as Minkai. He's the, one of the men who helped to kill the uh, five missionaries in 1956 in Ecuador. And uh, Minkaye was one of those angry young men uh, with a spear who killed those missionaries. He didn't realize that... Uh, That event would be used to bring many people not just to faith in Christ, but to missionary service, and I am one of those. I read that story about the the, uh, five missionaries who were killed. I read it in the Reader's Digest when I was about 18 years old. It was a Sunday afternoon. I read the story of the martyrdom of those missionaries, and I um, put the book down on my lap. And I heard a voice, and the voice said, There was a time and place for you in Christian service, and that's all it was. No more, no less than that. But from that point on, I began to walk through the doors that the Lord opened for me. And I, I didn't know that it would take me, where, where all it would take me. But, um, by the way, how many of you have been called to Christian service by reading the Reader's Digest? Laughter <laughs> I'm just one of thousands who, when they learned about that story, God spoke to them. And I had the privilege of meeting Minkai uh, several years ago. Dependency and Christian mission activity. I have a beginning observation. The road to dependency is paved with good intentions. We're sending a million or more short-term people all around the world to do good. They're staying a very short period of time. Their intention is to do good. What do I mean by unhealthy dependency? I'm talking about doing for people what they could do for themselves, could do or should do for themselves. That is, if their dignity and self-respect were identified and preserved. That's what I'm talking about. And by the way, uh, lest you try to write down everything I'm saying, you can go down to the bookstore or to the CMDA uh, display, and uh, there's a book there called When Charity Destroys Dignity, and it's all in there. Everything I'm going to tell you today, I think, is in here. Um, and uh, if you get there soon enough, you'll get one, because I think they're going to run out, they say. By the way, it's my contribution to the cure for insomnia. Uh, LAUGHTER If you can't sleep, start reading this. If you still can't sleep, money back guarantee. (laughs) I have two objectives for what I'm going to say. One is to show that unhealthy dependency can be avoided from the very beginning. And two is to show that unhealthy dependency can be overcome where it already exists. In other words, it's not a terminal illness. Churches don't need to die from it. They don't need to be paralyzed for life. New life comes to churches that figure out how to overcome unhealthy dependency. By the way, I'm going to be racing through this uh, rather quickly. I want to get to the part on on observations on medical institutions. Uh, So if it seems like I'm rushing, uh, I am. (laughs) Be careful not to assume that people have nothing to give back to God. If you make that assumption, you may be disappointing people. Do you know what the Bible says? It says it is more blessed to give than to receive. How many of you uh, feel that at one point or another in your life you have helped people and they became receivers and you got the blessing because you were the giver? How many would actually say that happened? Uh Sometimes I think we are so caught up in the giving part, we won't be happy until we have turned the whole world into receivers. Who gets the best part when that happens? The givers, right? Us. What if we were to shift and begin to figure out a way to help the rest of the world to discover that giving is better than receiving? That's what we'll talk about. Consider the Macedonians in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. As you know, this is a chapter in which the Apostle Paul is writing a letter to the Corinthians. And he's trying to tell them about the Macedonians. And he's um, using the Macedonians as an example. I once heard about a rooster that found an ostrich egg. You know how big an ostrich egg is. And he rolled the ostrich egg over to the hen house. And he called the hens over to look at it. And he said to the hens, I just want you to see what they're doing in other places. (laughs) That's what Paul's doing here. He's saying to these Corinthians, I just want you to know what the Macedonians are doing. Now, what Paul was doing is taking a collection for the needy church in Jerusalem. He was going around to the churches that he planted, taking a collection to send back to the mother church. Let me make an observation. I cannot find anywhere in the New Testament where money goes from the mother church to the mission field church. I can't find it anywhere. If you can, let me know. It does go from the mission field to the mother church, as in this case. What does that tell you about the way we look at church planting? How many of us can say money doesn't go from the mother church, it only comes to the mother church? Well, it's the New Testament model. Now, obviously, these people in Macedonia were well off because that's why Paul went there to take a collection. Does anybody here wish to agree with me on that? He must be taking a picture. Nobody. No, you're right. He says, out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. He was taking a collection among people who were in severe trial and extreme poverty. Have you ever thought that that's the ideal place to take a collection? Hmm. He says, I testify... That they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service for the saints. Those people in Macedonia were beggars. But do you know what they were begging for? They were begging for the privilege of giving. Imagine that kind of a beggar. He says in verse 5, they did not do as we expected. But they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. And here you have the the, uh, secret to people moving out of dependency into the joy of giving. They gave themselves first to the Lord. Don't expect people who don't know the Lord personally to joyfully put money in the church collection. I had a pastor in Zambia stand up and say to me one day, he said, oh, Mfundis, I don't know what to do. He said, the people in my church, they don't give. In fact, they don't even know the Lord. And I said, are you expecting people who don't know the Lord to joyfully put money in the church collection? His challenge was not to teach stewardship. It was to teach who Jesus is. Because hearts filled with the love of God and the Holy Spirit can joyfully give to the Lord. Well, there's much more in this chapter. One interesting verse down, here's verse 12. It says, for if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. And there's much more in that chapter. There's a whole section on accountability, which is very important when trying to understand and overcome the dependency syndrome. Accountability is one of the very, very important issues, and that's all spelled out in the last part of it. The assumptions with which we begin will most likely determine whether dependency develops. If you assume that people are poor, you will treat them that way. They will act like that, and 10, 20, 50 years down the road, they will still be dependent. If you treat them as God's children who have something to give back to Him, however meager, they will learn from that, and 10, 20, 50 years down the road, things for them will be different. What about overcoming dependency where it already exists? I'm just going to tell you a few quick stories, and I want to get on this medical stuff. We don't have much time. In South Africa, there was a church of uh, unemployed women and children. Men didn't even come to church. So every year, their senior minister came to North America to get money for his poor church in South Africa. This was, was sometimes referred to as the Black Assemblies of God because there are at least three denominations in South Africa called Assemblies of God. But this one is sort of distinctive by being called the Black Assemblies of God. So every year, Reverend Bangu came to get money in America for his poor church. But once while he was here, God spoke to him and said, don't ask these people for money. Go back home and get the money from your own people. And he said, but Lord, in my church all I have are unemployed women and children. Is that where you expect me to get the money? And the Lord said, yes, that's where you get the money. How many of you have thought that the ideal place to take a collection is among unemployed women and children? Anybody? You no? let me see. You see, you're not raising hands. And I raise my support by raised hands. And so I'm hoping for some raised hands. And I don't get any. What am I going to do? <laughs> So, God said to him, yes, that's what you do. And he's had this working relationship with the Lord. You know, some people, they talk to the Lord, and the Lord answers, and they talk back again. So, he said, Lord, I'll do it, but you have to show me how. And the Lord said to him, you do these four things. You go home and teach those women how to care for their families. Teach the women how to evangelize their husbands. Teach them how to make something with their hands so they can earn a living. And teach them to give something back to God in thanksgiving. In other words, teach them to tithe. So Reverend Bangu did this. He went back home. He began to teach these four things. So successful were they that there are now men in the the churches, which there weren't before. I have seen them because this church was transformed. He taught them, if you make something with your hands to sell, if you make ten dresses, just remember, one belongs to the Lord, it's not yours. If you make twenty baskets or thirty grass mats, just remember, if you make thirty, three are for the Lord, they're not yours. So tithing was built in to the earning process. The result is that this uh, church in 2008, had a conference, as they do every year, in a place called Tabanchu. Tabanchu. And they took a collection of over 15 million South African rand, which at seven to the dollar is two million U.S. dollars, in one collection from a church of unemployed women and children. How many of you think a good place to take a collection is from unemployed women and children? Can I see some hands? (laughs) I've never been anywhere where the collection was $2 million. May I ask you a question. How many dollars from America, as Reverend Bangu was collecting them, how many dollars from America would it have taken to get them to that point? It was four things that God said. What about overcoming dependency where it already exists? In Ethiopia in 1938, the Italians' uh, armies chased out the missionaries. They left about 100 believers. By 1943, the 100 had grown to 10,000 with no missionaries and no money. In China in 1951, the bamboo curtain went into place. Missionaries were forced out. They left about a million believers. More or less, it's hard to know because many were in uh, unregistered churches but the $1 million became $50 million in 30 years with no money from the outside and no missionaries from the outside. In East Africa in the 1970s, the Presbyterian Church of East Africa decided that it, was, had, it had unhealthy dependency upon people in Scotland. And so they, they elected a moderator by the name of John. And John said, what kind of church is this? It can't even pay the moderator's salary. We have to ask for money from overseas. So he asked the people overseas, keep your money. For five years, don't send us any money. For five years, don't send us any missionaries. And for five years, don't make any decisions for us. Very quickly, the Presbyterian Church in East Africa began to build their own buildings, buy their own vehicles, plant new churches. They uh, started a pension fund for for their pastors, and they... And then they heard that there were homeless children on the streets of Edinburgh, Scotland, where their money always came from. They said, we should do something to say thank you to God for the salvation we have received. Let's take a collection for Scotland. So they took a collection of 200,000 Kenya shillings, which was about $30,000 at the time, to send to Scotland. They had to break the back of the unhealthy dependency syndrome before this happened. Um, I want to add one or two more stories. I want to tell you about something that happened to me in um, Togo. I, I did a seminar in Togo here uh, some time ago. And a young pastor stood up and said, I want to tell you my story. He said, um, I come from Cameroon, and we wanted to. Uh, our church wanted to evangelize about 30 villages. And we knew it was going to be expensive. So we sat down to make up a budget, and the budget came to $100,000 worth of CFA francs. And he said to his colleagues, that's too much. We we can't raise that much money. But one of the other church leaders said, no, no, wait a minute. Let's see what we can do. Uh, Let's try something. Let's invite people to bring whatever they can afford. You know, 2 Corinthians 8:12, the gift is acceptable according to what one has. Let's invite them to bring whatever they can. If they can afford to bring an egg, let them bring an egg. If they can afford to bring a chicken, let them bring a chicken. If they can afford to bring a cow, let them bring a cow. The church leaders listened, thankfully, to the second man, not the first. The first man said, it can't be done. The second man said, let's try. When I talk about assumptions, and I mentioned a while ago, I had at the bottom of the screen uh, the important role of assumptions because they determine where you're going to end up. The assumption you make uh, way back at the beginning, if it's this way a little bit, you'll end up over here. If it's this way a little bit, you'll end up way over here. So it's very important about these assumptions. I call them little self-fulfilling prophecies that if we believe them, that's where we will go. So they listened to the second man, and they launched the fundraising project, an egg, a chicken, a cow. They not only raised $100,000 worth of CFA francs, they went beyond that and had enough over and above the $100,000 to buy a vehicle for the project. Be careful not to assume that people have nothing to give back to God. Now, one of the most popular words today is the term partnership or interdependence. I have a problem with both of these words because frequently we're trying to develop a partnership from North America with someone who's very, very poor. And the way to test a partnership, I think I've got it here. Yeah, how do you test a partnership? You ask how many directions the resources flow. If the resources flow in only one direction, then partnership is a questionable term. You might better use the word sponsorship. If resources flow in only one direction, then, I, yeah, right there it is. I prophesied that, that just now. <laughs> and it appears, isn't that amazing how that happens? I'm telling you. It never ceases to amaze me. Consider the benefits of local, local interdependence. We began talking about these issues in East Africa. And I've been sort of doing this now for the last... Twenty seven years. One of the uh, church leaders came up with the idea of we were discussing interdependence and he said, uh, interdependence, he said, uh, the only kind I believe in is local, local. And we're all sitting there saying, what does he mean by that? So we asked him to explain. He said, well, I believe in being interdependent. He said, we're in the Presbyterian church. But we should be interdependent with the Methodists in Kenya, with the african Land Church in Kenya, or with the Anglicans in Kenya. That's the kind of interdependence I believe in. Local, local. He said, what I don't believe in is the kind where you you try to be interdependent with a wealthy church overseas. That kind of interdependence isn't ideal. Now, let's talk a little bit about Christian hospitals. And by the way, I'm going to try to allow time uh, for you to ask some questions. Not that i have all, all the answers, but the questions will be fine. Can Christian hospitals or mission-established hospitals become self-supporting? Um, I gave some illustrations of churches which made the transition from being dependent to standing on their own two feet. And I have many, many stories, but I don't have time to give them. Well, the answer to that question is it depends on many things, such as beginning assumptions, by the way, there it is again, location, history, economics, politics, and the will to make it happen. Without the will to make it happen, it's unlikely that a hospital will move from being dependent on foreign funds to becoming self-supporting. Um, at this uh, conference, it's either last year or the year before, I'm not sure which I uh, was standing at the door on Saturday uh, with my bags, waiting for my colleague, for Dr. Fountain. We were going to leave together, to go to the airport. And a man came over to me and said, "I want to tell you about my experience in Ghana." He said, I was a med- "I'm a medical doctor, and I was running a hospital in Ghana. It was dependent upon foreign funding." And uh, he said, uh, "One of my co- colleagues recommended that I get a hold of." video series on dependency that he heard about and learned what he can about dependency. Well, it happens to be the video series that we produced, which is really, it's transcribed and it's the first 16 chapters in this book now. But so this medical doctor and his wife sat down and listened to the eight hours. It's me droning on for eight hours. <laughs> Imagine that, how they kept awake. Anyway... Um, They listened to this, and then they said to themselves, based on what we just learned, what should we be doing differently in this hospital? And he said, that was 10 years ago. And now that hospital is 100% staffed by Ghanaian people and 100% supported with Ghanaian finances. So when I say uh, beginning assumptions, or in this case, Uh, An examination of the assumptions in the middle of the process. This is the potential that it has. You ask yourself the question, can hospitals be saved? (laughs) Well, we like to talk about being saved, but can hospitals be saved? And I'll give you a few more stories now to show that, yes, hospitals can be saved. I'm not saying that every hospital will be like these that I'm going to tell you about. There are some that are in very difficult circumstances maybe some things can be done, but these dramatic examples won't fit everywhere. I'm the first to admit that. Where in the world is Tumutumu? Tumu? Has anyone here ever heard of Tumutumu Tumu Hospital? Okay, It's a hospital in Kenya. It was actually run by the Presbyterian Church. It fell on hard times. And the people sending money from overseas said, close the hospital. Well, now, right there is a sign of a problem. When someone very far away can tell the people in Kenya to close their hospital. So the local people said, wait a minute. How can people so far away tell us what to do with our hospital? Well, those other people said, we're not going to fund it anymore. This is what you call mission funding fatigue. You got tired. Well, they... uh, The people in Kenya said, let us see what we can do. So what they did is they organized a march from a suburb of Nairobi, a place called Kikuyu, 150 kilometers away from Tumutumu. They organized a march. They had medical people on the staff, and they had pastors and evangelists on the staff, and they began to march for 150 kilometers. They would have roadside clinics during the day, They would have uh, evangelistic services in the evening in the villages. And as they marched, the villagers said, where are you going? Why are you marching? What is this? And they said, help us. We're trying to save our hospital. Someone's threatening to close it. Help us. So for 150 kilometers, they were raising awareness about the needs in their hospital. It was funded, as I said, from overseas. Let me see what else I have on here. The overseas funders developed donor fatigue, right? And the local people decided to take it over. The result? Tumutumu Hospital was saved. To what extent was it saved? Well, it was uh, under new management. It was refurbished. It was painted. The latrines were refurbished and cleaned up. And the local people who took over the hospital said those latrines should be clean enough that one could eat a meal inside. Imagine that. Imagine a missionary saying to people, you should have such a clean... No, no, no. Local people say to other local people, that's how clean the latrine should be. They banned uh, drinking, and three staff members opted to leave because they preferred drinking. And it wasn't long until that hospital was 95% funded with local resources, same place that couldn't exist without overseas funding. Tumutumu was saved. Uh, By the way, this story is available on our website uh, at WMAUSA.org. It's called The Transformation of Tumutumu Hospital, which was written, by the way, by the chairman of the uh, Christian Health um, Association of Kenya. Where in the world is Clinica Biblica? Has anyone heard of this one? Okay, Clinica Biblica is a mission hospital, was a mission hospital, in Costa Rica, in San Jose. It fell on hard times. The mission, Latin American mission, said it's not the evangelistic uh, tool that we thought it was going to be. It's draining money, missionary money. Close it. Some local people said, wait a minute, how can people far away, you know by now what I'm going to say, how can people far away say that our hospital has to be closed? Let us uh, take it over and see what we can do. Now, I talk a lot about and write about the issue of ownership. Um, And I have a particular kind that I think is the most important of all, and it's what I call psychological ownership. There are several other kinds. You have legal ownership where you may have a a car might be in your name but you don't know how to drive. But it's yours because it's in your name. That's legally yours. But if you know how to drive it then functionally you're the the owner because you're driving it back and forth to work every day. But it doesn't mean you're going to take care of it. Maybe you're an irresponsible uh, member of the family. But if it's your car And you have true psychological ownership of that car. You will take care of it. You will make sure that it's serviced. You will make sure that it's not unnecessarily damaged because psychologically it's yours. Well, that's what was happening here. It's what happened in Tumutumu. There was a transfer of psychological ownership. Clinica Biblica is a former mission-established hospital. It suffered from mission fatigue. It was started by missionaries in 1929 and was threatened with closure in the 1960s. Psychological ownership transferred in the 1970s. The result, Clinica Biblica, was saved. It's one of the premier hospitals in Central America. I understand a President of the United States was traveling in Central America and needed medical attention. He was taken to Clinica Biblica by the way several years ago they launched a $23 million addition to the hospital do hospitals have to die from unhealthy dependency not necessarily ownership transfers local people say give us a chance let's see what we can do that's the beginning of the transfer of psychological ownership now let's look at a few things Observations on the transformation of Clinica Biblica. Those who are skeptical of local sustainability will find things to criticize, and that's true of just about everything I say. Uh, Somebody who is defensive about the need to put in foreign funding can find something wrong with every situation in the world, but that's the nature of being skeptical. So there are things that could be done better, just as in every other place you know about in the world, things could be done better in some ways. As much as 40% of the profit is returned to the community. Profit? I thought they were having trouble keeping the doors open. with the new ownership, they moved from the lost column to the profit column. Some say Clinica Biblica overcharges the rich to help the poor. They call this Robin Hooding or in hospital terminology, I understand the medical people call it crossover income. In other words, those who are more able pay a higher fee structure and then those who are less able benefit from it, crossover income. Some say that the evangelistic fervor has been diminished now that the hospital is in other people's hands. The mission used it as an opportunity to witness. Others say that being a poor mission hospital is no guarantee that the spiritual emphasis will be strong. Just being poor and just being run by the mission doesn't necessarily mean that you will have a strong witness in the community. Be assured the Clinica Biblica is no longer draining mission funds intended for evangelism. Now, Banga Hospital in Congo, how many of you know Dr. Dan Fountain? Some of you have been in his seminars. Dan, are you here somewhere? Oh, good. Now let's talk about him. (laughs) Uh, He spent 30 years or 35 years at Banga Hospital, they started 50 rural health clinics using the hospital as a central place to train people to run uh, rural clinics. He began with the assumption that curing should be close to where curing is needed, in the villages. Don't make people walk two or three days. You know, walking to a mission hospital for two or three days would be the equivalent of us having to go from Pennsylvania to, say, uh, Colorado or something like that. And if you're really, really sick, that's just not the the ideal place to have to get your treatment. Curing should be close to where curing is needed. Rural clinics can be funded and built with local resources. That's another benefit of of decentralizing that hospital. Rural clinics take the pressure off of medical staff in large hospitals because many people do not have to come to the, the big hospital. The cost of overhead is considerably lower in rural clinics compared to large hospitals. And medical professionals who visit rural clinics see illness in context. In other words, uh, they see sanitation or the lack thereof. Nutrition, etc. To learn about Bonga Hospital, just read anything that Dr. Fountain has written. He has excellent ideas on how to mobilize uh, a hospital to do uh, God's work. Now, uh, they're in the Congo, which is very different from Costa Rica and different from Kenya. Kenya still has a functioning currency where you have uh, countries in Africa like Congo and Zimbabwe where the, the currency is uh, virtually defunct. So I'm not saying that all of these things can be done everywhere. But what i like to do is just open, say, uh, uh, Throw up the window sash and let a little fresh air in so that we all begin to think about what might be possible where we are. Observation on the sustainability of Christian hospitals. Number one, government support is not the secret to sustainability. In uh, 2000, the year 2000, we did a seminar in Nairobi for hospital administrators and medical officers. I think there were about 70 who came. And they sat there for three or four days and talked to each other about what sustainability means. And some of the stories that I'm telling you here uh, and and various others as well uh, came out of that time because one after another would stand up and say, this is what we are doing and this is how it is working. Our hospital had these problems, this and this and this, but then we did something and now we don't have the same problems. Um, And so One of the things they told us is that in Kenya, where the government does not support Christian hospitals directly, they're more likely to stand on their own two feet than in some other places like Ghana and Zambia, where government support is there, but hospitals still aren't faring very well. One of the hospitals in Kenya they told about, had four Kenyan medical doctors on its staff. How did they succeed in doing that? Because in many places, and this has been my experience, I know a place, I just met a man this morning, um, is uh, Dr. Jewell here by any chance? Okay. Dr. Jewell explained in Zambia the brain drain and how it affects hospitals. And the point is that this hospital called Chigoria, went to the medical institute uh, and the medical school in Nairobi and developed a relationship with students for several years before graduation. And by the time they graduated, they were already familiar with Chigoria, and they ended up going there to be doctors. Another thing that Chigoria did is they figured out that local people could pay for medical services, but they would have to budget for it. So they put four people on staff who were full-time financial counselors helping people to get ready for surgery because you have surgery coming up, say, in four weeks or six weeks or whatever it is. How are you going to pay for it? And the counselor sits down and counsels people on how to be prepared for that. So you don't have to simply sit and wring your hands and say nothing can be done. You simply hire four debt collectors, as it were, Psychological ownership is critical to to local sustainability. If there are a significant number of expatriates sitting in the wings or sitting in the um, uh, decision-making room, you can pretty well count on it. Uh, Sustainability will be difficult with local resources because everyone will expect. We have a, a saying in Central Africa... Uh, that says if there is one white man in the room when we're discussing finances of the church or whatever, if there is one white man in the room, we will vote the way he wants us to vote even if he doesn't say anything because we will watch his eyes and we will know how to vote. Meaning that the person of power with the money that could put money in, which often happens, Because missionaries get such a good feeling from raising that money and putting it in. But the point is that if we just sit back and wait, even if he doesn't say anything, we will vote the way he wants wants us to vote. All has to do with psychological ownership. This is why I suggest to missionaries, if you're present when a church wants to do business, Just excuse yourself and say, thank you very much, I'd like to go out. I I, I can't come to the meeting today. What? You can't come? Don't you care? Oh, yes, I care. I care so much that I would like to see you manage your own church without me present. There's a long history of unhealthy dependency that affects both the church and the medical institutions. This is not a problem that was just started recently, and it won't be solved overnight. But the good news is... It doesn't have to last forever. Now, what about where there is no hospital? (laughs) Supposing you're in some part of very rural Congo or very rural Zimbabwe or someplace like that, where there is no hospital and there is no money for a hospital, what would you do? Well, one is you could wait till there is money and no health care would be given while you're waiting. Another is that you could raise the money and work uh, actively at getting the money to build a big hospital. Or, oh, by the way, these are uh, this is one 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 one. This is one eleven. You know, the corduroy day. Did you did you see it? This is called corduroy day. Did you know that? Put all those ones beside each other and it looks like corduroy. So that's <laughs> it should be option two and three and so on. I'm not infallible yet. Uh, you could scatter clinics far and wide throughout this region without, you know, you don't have money for a hospital, but you could give some kind of primary care uh, through those uh, through clinics. Or you could become an educator. Hmm, somebody's already assenting to the truth of the message that I'm giving. You could become an educator. I want to tell you about this. Village Health evangelism Has anyone here ever heard of Dr. David Hilton? Ah, Dr. David Hilton yet and read what he's written. He was a missionary to uh, Nigeria. And uh, the way I learned about it was through a plan called the Lrden Gobas Plan of Village Health Medicine. And they, and they analyzed what was happening in a hospital, a mission hospital. Began to realize that many of the people who were coming into that hospital were there for reasons that they, that could be solved before they got to the hospital. So the point is, how do you revamp the mission of the hospital to uh, be, to be, uh, uh, to keep people from coming to it? If you just went out and told people to stop beating each other in drunken brawls, you could reduce the number of people that have to come to ER, right? Okay, so is anybody doing that, or are we just going to let them beat each other, and then we'll just take care of them when they come here? And these doctors who came up with this Lord and plan said, the most difficult thing for the medical officer is to walk away from a, an ER room filled with very needy people and to go out into the village and take the precious time he has to treat people to go out in those villages and tell people to stop getting sick teach them how to avoid malaria teach them how to avoid um, worms uh, by using latrines and so on so on so on like that well uh, I would encourage you all all I can do is encourage you I'm not a medical person by the way I'm not a doctor I haven't even been a nurse Uh, So, But I would encourage you to read up on anything like this because prevention is an alternative to building a very large hospital. And that's what I was saying here. What if there's no money for a very large hospital? Let me tell you a little bit of how Dr. Hilton made this work. And I have to stop in one minute. I will because I'm over time. I'm sorry. Anyway, they established Rural Health Clinics. The only village that got a clinic is one in which the people would be willing to build it. If they wouldn't build the clinic in the village, they would not assign a nurse to, to work in it. But the doctor, when he visited, would not go into the clinic. He would stay by his vehicle out along the main road. The nurse would come over and say, this is a problem I'm having, and what do you suggest I do? And he would counsel her, and he would not walk over to see the patient. Why was he doing that sort of thing? He was doing that so that, the pe- so that the nurse who was in charge was elevated in her standing with the people to be able to treat that. Now, I'm sure if it was a serious emergency, it would, there would have been an exception. Anyway, no, I'm sorry. i got to stop. Uh, yeah. Because, am, I, am I wrong? W- aren't we stopping at uh, or 2.45? Right. If you need to go, go. If you want to stay and talk or ask questions or something, feel free. Anyway, I enjoyed being with you. Thanks so much.